Hello? Good morning. Good morning, church. How are you? Matthew chapter 1, verse, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus said to the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say things, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning. We're missing about 50 of our middle schoolers and a few volunteers who are gone on a retreat this weekend. So for all those of you who were looking around thinking, does this church have middle school kids? We do, all right? They just aren't here. I'm sure a lot of you are already thinking that this morning or something like that. Uh, Is Seth King here? Seth, are you here somewhere? They may be at the retreat, but Seth, I just wanted to thank Seth for uh, filling in for me last week for for preaching last week, I was uh, speaking at a jubilee event outside of Dallas last weekend, so I miss being with you, but so thankful for Seth, uh, just a, a man of God, a man with so much passion and theological uh, depth, and was grateful for him uh, if you don 't know Seth um, Maybe you can look him up on Facebook or something. My my youngest son leaned over to Casey when Seth stepped up here to preach last week, and he leaned over and he said, "Mom." Is that Michael Phelps preaching today? Uh, which would have been so cool if I had that connection to get Michael Phelps here on stage. And I was like, you know, Casey did, I don't know if it was just that Seth looks like him, or did he step up there and do that little exercise thing Phelps does, you know, before he, uh, which Wednesday night I did that in front of the class and like pulled a muscle in my shoulder. So <laughs> wasn't going to do that today for you. Uh, we turned off the projector. I don't know. It was doing. It had a mind of its own this morning. So I would invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. We are in the seventh of an eight-week series on the Beatitudes, uh, and, and Jesus does not give these to people as a suggestion. These are ways for you to live into this new identity uh, that God wants for you. Uh, when I've been going through the Beatitudes, and Casey and I are also co-teaching a class on Wednesday nights, it's focused on discipleship and. Last week, the, what we taught on Wednesday night was so good for me. We talked a lot about um, the need for reflection and inspection and inventory in a spiritual life, that we have to take moments where we pause before God to gauge the health of our own heart and the development of our soul, uh, which meant that I had to do some reflecting last week. And one thing I felt like God just like slapped me upside the head last week with this truth that is so true for me and maybe true for you too. Why is it sometimes that we take better care of our vehicles than we do our own hearts and souls. And what I mean by that is when your car, when it shows that that E-light comes on, that you're on empty, you take care of that. You fill it up. 
Even if you don't have a lot of money, you know that if you don't fill it up, you're not going to be able to get somewhere where you need to make money. When you need an oil change, you get an oil change. When a, when a check engine light comes on, you may not check it immediately. You may be like, oh, it's just a, you know, something's going on, but it's really not that big of a deal. But uh, pretty soon, you're going to look it up in the book. You're going to call a friend. Yet sometimes when it comes to us feeling empty inside, we push it off. Or we think, well, in four months, with that, when I get that vacation or that one trip, then I'll get filled up. Or there, there are times in our own hearts where we know something is in us that doesn't reflect of God, yet we convince ourselves it's really not that big of a deal. And this is why I think the Beatitudes are so important for us. Because Jesus lays these in front of you as these blessings of what God wants you to be, a blessings God speaks over you, and the truth that God wants you to live into. So today we come to what, what, what I think is one of the hardest statements of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I've been in conversations with people over the last couple of months about the Beatitudes. I've been with some of you, maybe over lunch or in conversations. And a lot of times the question I'll ask people is, which of the Beatitudes do you need most in your life right now? And which one do you find to be the most challenging? And almost hands down, except one time, someone responded with, uh, uh, almost every time except one, the response of what was the most challenging was, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And that one time was my friend, Kent Brantley. He was a, a doctor. You've probably heard his story a couple of years ago. And Kent uh, was uh, infected with the Epo, uh, Ebola virus. And uh, miraculously, he was, he was healed. And he went on to be the New York Times Person of the Year. He, he's spoken in front of Congress and many other places. And I shot an interview with him last Monday night that we will show next Sunday here for uh, a few minutes that you will hear from Kent. Kent. And it's one of the questions I asked him. Which one means the most to you right now and which is the most challenging? So uh, hopefully you have some notes, uh, something you can take some notes on, uh, maybe a phone that you want to put some stuff in, because I would love for you to think of one thing in this message that you can take home or, and or that you could share with other people. Let me begin with how this beatitude ends. Because this promise that you will be called children of God is the most relational promise in all the beatitudes. There are promises of if you're pure in heart, you'll see God and you'll receive comfort from God. But this is one that blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Does anyone here not want to be called a child of God? This is the most relational promise that you'll be called children of God, not just an acquaintance of God, not just a, a friend of God, though that shows up some in Scripture. You will be called children of God of God. A child is one who has a name of whoever his parents are. And God gives us the right to wear his name. We become Christians. We become one with Christ. We become uh, those who are like God. So God gives us a name, but being a child also means you have benefits. It means you also have, um, you have an inheritance. And the New Testament declares that what God has given to Jesus is what God will do for us too. There, there's a name. There are benefits. Now, uh, there's a song that came out last year. It's called No Longer Slaves. It's by Bethel. It's become one of my favorite songs for, for weeks, months. This was the song I would listen to before I would leave my office to preach on Sunday mornings. And towards the end of a song, this woman who is singing it says six, maybe seven times, I am a child of God. And as she's singing the song, it's like she is yelling that. And I was talking to someone one time. I was like, dude, have you heard No Longer Slaves? 
And this person I was talking to said, yeah, I've heard it, but at the very end, it's like she's just yelling at me with that she's a child of God. And I just couldn't tell you it was too loud. And I, it made me think, I was like, you know what? I think that's why I like that song for so long, because I needed someone to yell that truth over me. Because I was forgetting it. That you are a child of God, because I bet some of you have, you have heard the lies of Satan before. Lies that say stuff like this, you're not good enough that you are not forgivable because some of the things you've done, or I bet some of you have heard the lie from the enemy before that has gone something like this. God has reluctantly forgiven you, but he's still really disappointed in you. And he's keeping a close eye on you because if you do something that you used to do, uh, his forgiveness may be taken back. And there are all these lies that the enemy attempts to speak over us. And there's one thing I love about coming to communion with you every week, taking the bread and taking the cup, because it's the place where we come, where we can ask a question of, God, do you still want me? And the response of Jesus and what he has accomplished is, I want you. I, I, uh, even in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your past and things you've done, Jesus wants you. Jesus is bigger than your failure, your rebellion, your past. He's bigger than all of your deepest regrets. And this is the promise that says, you do this, you'll be called children of God. Wearing his name, receiving the benefits, having the inheritance. Uh, So before we even talk about what it means to be peacemakers, we have to understand peace. And to understand peace in the first culture was what some of you maybe have heard before, like Pax Romana. It was the peace of Rome. And this was a big deal because Rome was, they, they were the big boy on the block back then. They were... Rome had this desire to spread peace, and there were a lot of good desires that came from Rome. And what Rome would often do is they wanted to spread their peace their way. So what Rome would do is they would see a couple of countries who were fighting, and they weren't getting along, and they're at war, and Rome would step in because these were smaller countries, and Rome would say, hey, uh, it's time for you to play nice. So swear allegiance to Rome, And we can boost your economy, and we can do things for your cities. Just get along with each other. And Rome would step in, and they could, Rome, there were so many things that Rome did that provided the way for the gospel of Jesus to move throughout the world. One of what, what Rome wanted to do is Rome wanted to make lakes and seas safe so that people could travel for the sake of work and expansion, and you wouldn't have to worry about pirates taking you out. Rome wanted to to build roads from one place to another for the sake of their economy and, and, to, and to spread peace. So what Rome was able to do, that, because of what they did, the gospel was able to spread. And Rome had this desire to spread peace. Now, if you stood up against the peace of Rome, you started riots. You were more into conflict and chaos. And whatever they thought was in their way, they... They had ways of taking care of you. One of the primary ways was a cross. Jesus, there are times where you read about Jesus disrupting the peace. There are times you read about Christians in the book of Acts who started riots and they were at the very heart of this disruption that would happen in many cities. And as much as Rome wanted to spread peace, Rome spread, the way they would spread peace was through power and conquest. But Jesus came to usher in a totally different kind of peace. That his peace would spread through sacrifice and through love and mercy and through humility. The peace that Jesus came to give is the peace you read about God having in the Old Testament. It was, it's called shalom. It is not just some inner feeling you have inside of you. It is 
<clears throat> it is wholeness. It is being complete. It's from head to toe receiving healing from God. It's the power of shalom. And before I talk about what peace is, I want to talk about what peace is not. Here are two things. Feel free to write them down. Two things that peace is not. Number one, peace is not getting your own way. And you may look at me right now and you're like, dude, I know that. But tell me if something like this has ever happened to you. Now, this uh, could relate to you even if you don't like sports. There are times when I'm in my house, and uh, this hadn't happened a lot because I, I know you probably don't envision your preacher ever getting mad or yelling at his kids. But there are times when I've, I've been in my living room, and I'm watching a game, and I'm into a game, and Casey's over in a chair, and the boys are in the room, but the boys are getting really loud. And they've been playing on the ground and they, something happens and they get in front of the TV. And there have been a couple of times, I don't want to count how many times, but there have been times where I just, I'm like, can everybody just be quiet? Hush, way too much noise. And the boys like take off running to their rooms and Casey sits over there looking at me like I married a monster. And, I'm, and then I'm like, thank God there's peace now. But did I create peace in that moment? I created silence in that moment. Sometimes we think if people would just hush about conflict, peace would step in. And that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. That peace is not when you get your way. Now, I bet some of you would also say that a lot of times in your life, and some of you are here right now, and you would say this, is that you don't like the pace of of peace coming into your life. You wish that the pace of peace, how God would inject peace in your life, would happen at a much quicker pace than it currently is. And there was a group back in the first century who felt this way. They didn't think the kingdom of God was coming quick enough. They didn't think God was acting quick enough. In fact, they thought that, well, maybe we should do more. And so they began to think and convince themselves that the kingdom of God will come if we make this come through violence. So this group called the Zealots would raise up. It was like this militia group that their goal was to try to, in secret ways, like take out Roman soldiers and and take over Rome by their secret methods, which didn't work. Secondly, what peace is not, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict. I uh, heard a story um, recently of a, a husband and wife. They got in a disagreement, and uh, it was a pretty good fight they had. And they decided that we're just going to give each other the silent treatment for a couple of days. So they did. And after a couple of days, the husband went to sleep at night, and um, he knew he had to catch an early flight in the morning. So he, he knew his wife would wake up at 5 a.m. to go and work out. That's what she did every day. So he wrote on a piece of paper and put it on her phone where the alarm would go off. Uh, hey, please make sure I am awake in the morning when you wake up so I can catch my flight. He woke up the next morning at 7.30 a.m. He missed his flight, and he was livid. And as he jumped out of bed, he looked, and there was a note his wife wrote and put it on his side of the bed, which said, it is 5 a.m., it's time to wake up. And there was... There was silence in the house, but there wasn't peace in the house. Now, let me, let me 
Let me try to go at it this way. Peace is not the absence of conflict because when you look and you think about the things that are happening, even in our culture today, sometimes we think if we are silent about conflict, then peace will have a better chance of reigning. So let's not talk about the conflict. Don't create conflict. Don't talk about the conflict. Don't bring up the conflict. So whether we're talking about race or sexuality or political agendas or whatever it may be, wherever conflict exists, if we just want to talk about it, don't bring it up, don't make a big deal about it, then peace will reign. It's not the way peace works. And it's not the way the book of Acts and the church talked about peace. In the book of Acts, a lot of times we think in Acts 1-8, what happens is the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And you have like this rock that falls in the, you know, there's like this pebble that falls in the pond and it, it's this ripple, like it's moving out. It starts in Jerusalem and it moves out. But that's not the way the book of Acts works. It does move out, but there are times where it moves back in. Because in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15, there was some conflict. Because the church didn't know what to do when Jews and Gentiles and these people from all these other regions started coming into the story of God, how do they get along? And, and it's not just are Gentiles allowed into the kingdom, but then they're asking questions of, well, what kind of Gentiles can we allow in leadership positions? And what if there's a, a pagan, uh, someone who used to be a pagan, who you know, has been married four different times, can we allow them to have some kind of leadership role in this new story of God? And how do we get along in all these races and ages and people from different places coming together? So in Acts 11 and Acts 15, the church said, hey, there's conflict and we've got to, we've got to talk about this. For the sake of the world, we've got to come together and we've got to talk. I've done so many premarital counseling sessions. I've done marriage counseling sessions. And one of the things I talk about a lot is to have a healthy marriage doesn't mean you don't fight. It means you know what rules you fight by. It's how you engage in conflict. Because rarely, at least in my experiences, rarely does not talking about something lead to emotional and relational healing. Rarely does refusing to talk about conflict that exists in our life, in our family, in our culture, rarely does it lead to emotional and relational healing. And let me show you, let me show you how this plays out in the life of Jesus. Because a lot of times in the Bible where you see peace, you also see conflict. Where you see conflict, you see how God wants to inject peace. And it's not that conflict goes away so the shalom of God can reign. And let me show you in the life of Jesus how this works. There were two times where Jesus got really emotional, and you read specific places where Jesus cried. One time when Jesus cried and he wept was in John 11 when uh, he was with people who were grieving the loss of, of Lazarus. Even though Jesus was about to raise him from the dead, he wept with those who wept. The other time you have Jesus weeping is in Luke 19 where he wept over an entire city. He, he wept over the injustice and the rebellion in a city things in the city of Jerusalem that weren't right. And at the Garden of Gethsemane are moments where you have these emotions that come to life in Jesus. I don't know if you've ever uh, looked in a children's Bible or you've seen pictures of Jesus praying in the garden the night before he was betrayed. And sometimes you have these pictures of Jesus like on his knees or, you know, he's, he's sitting there in this posture. But when you start reading gospel examples of what Jesus did, the, the words describing Jesus and in the book of Mark, it says Jesus threw himself down on the ground. He was greatly agitated. In the gospel of Luke, it talks about how Jesus is, as he's praying before God, there are, 
like sweat drops of blood that are falling from his head, which was actually a disease that was caused by great stress in someone's life. Jesus is faced with this moment of great conflict where he's about to take upon himself the conflict that has existed in anyone's life because of sin and all forms of dysfunction. And the word peace is never described in the crucifixion story. The word peace does not show up. But, but check this out. At the, in the Gospel of John, as Jesus dies, the last phrase he says is, it is finished. He doesn't say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. And as he says, it is finished, he dies. And when he comes back to life and he meets with the disciples for the first time, there's a phrase that shows up three different times. And the phrase is, peace be with you. The first word the disciples hear from Jesus when he rose from the dead was, peace be with you. In John chapter 20, verse 19 through 21, it says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And a few verses later, it says a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus rose from the dead. And the word that comes to mind that he speaks over his followers is shalom, peace. All the ways you thought evil was winning, what I just did is conquered evil. And now this is the peace that enters into you, and it's the peace that sends you out. When you look throughout the Bible, a lot of times the word peace is right next to the word righteousness. Because peace comes to those who are trying to live in this way that is right with God. In Psalm chapter 85, verse 10, it says this way. It's what it says in Psalm 85, verse 10, is that love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That righteousness and peace come together and they kiss. They are so tightly bound because usually where there is a righteous person, the peace of God is being injected. And where the peace of God is injected, people are called in the deeper forms of righteousness. Now, here's the moment where I wish I could, I could take you by the hand right now. Though some of you would think that's really weird. All right, Terry Miller, right? I wish I could take you by the hand. For some of you, I wish I could put a hand on your shoulder. For some of you, I wish I could just grab your face and speak this into you. Because what is so hard for us to believe is that the peace of God coming into your life may not mean that the circumstances immediately change in your life. It means that the circumstances and the things that can cause stress will be there like they always have been or like they have been recently. But the peace of God comes into that circumstance to transform your heart, to give you a better attitude, to give you a vision of how the plan of God is unfolding in the world and unfolding before you. I wish I could take you by the hand and keep you from asking the question of how do I get to peace and instead sit with the question of how does God's peace want to get into you? that instead of you thinking you have to get to a place as if peace is a destination, that you would see that God looks at you today and God says, you are my destination in which I want peace to dwell. The promise is you will be called children of God. 
and I spent time earlier talking to you about to be a child of God means you have a name and you have the benefits and you have the inheritance of being a child. But the child of God is not just about a new name. The child, being a child of God is also about the mission of God. It's not just you getting a name, it's you also get his mission. It's, it's not that you become a name-only Christian. You become one who is stepping into the ways of Jesus. And the blessing that comes in this beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers. There have been times in my life, Casey and I have talked about this, especially early on in this series, where I'm like, what? You know, what if I get seven of the eight, you know? Like, what if I try just to take seven of the eight beatitudes seriously? Would God be pleased with that? Because this is a hard one. Because it doesn't say blessed are those who like peace or blessed are those who love peace or blessed are those who want to stand for peace. It's blessed are those who make peace. An anonymous, I I don't know who, who made this statement, but a person once said a peacemaker is not those who simply live in peace and enjoy the fruit of peace, but those who devote themselves to the hard work of reconciling hostile individuals, families, groups, and nations. And when you read about how Jesus was bringing peace into the world, it's where some people want to build walls. And I'm not, I'm not, I know walls have become a real big deal in the political world. I'm just using an image we have used for decades, all right? Where some people want to build walls in the world, peacemakers want to build bridges. Where some people want to spread hate in the world, peacemakers are the ones who spread love. Where some people want to play it safe and take their hands off of life and just go in a room, peacemakers. only want to go in a room to be filled with the power of God so they can go into places of conflict to spread and inject peace. Can you think of a place in your life or an individual in your life who is in need of you speaking or bringing peace into them? A person once said, Shalom is not just the absence of evil, but it is a positive word which has to do with the well-being of another person. Seeking for them the highest good. And consequently, being a peacemaker is to work for right relationships between persons, between all people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Will you bow your heads? Close your eyes, if you will, just for a moment. Let's pray together. God, somewhere in this room, there's a heart that you need to open up in this moment. There's a person who is, would describe their life as being surrounded by a lot of conflict and crisis. And right now, will you speak peace into them? Give them a vision of what it looks like, of what it means to crave it. God, where there is uh, hard hearts in this room, because of situations and circumstances and just the, the environment we live in, hearts which it's hard for your peace to get into, God, will you come with your power and just tear open hearts so that your peace may reign? Wherever it is that you need to inject peace, will you bring it wherever it is you need to call us to be peacemakers, give us great vision and also courage to speak and bring peace into those places. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're about to sing a couple of songs. We have prayer leaders and shepherds around this room. I set up a few tables today with some pens and pieces of paper.
that if you can identify a place in your life where you need us to pray for the peace of God to come, or maybe there's somewhere in your life that you know there was a place or a relationship you need to be working for peace, if there's any way we can pray over you, I invite you to either go to a person. Can our can shepherds, can y'all go ahead and start moving prayer leaders so people will see who you are and where you are? And I invite you to go to one of those tables. It's one of the highlight of our staff meetings. We have a group of elders and ministers who will meet tomorrow night. This will be things we can pray for. So however we can pray peace over your life, we want to do that. Thank you, Lauren and Levernice and Kim Chapman. And we have a few elders available. Can we stand together? We're going to sing a couple of songs. Feel free to.